begin. Good morning, Calvary. Welcome to Sunday School. Can you hear me? Okay, good. All right. We've reached another turning point in our study through the Bible. Over the last two and a half quarters, we have been studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospels. But now Jesus' work has been finished. He has lived, died, risen again, and ascended to the right hand of God in heaven. Jesus has fully accomplished what the Father sent him to do in his first advent. But what happened next? Did the disciples obey the charge given to them by Jesus? And if they did, how did they do it? I mean, we've seen these disciples. They're weak in faith, slow to understand. How could they actually do what Jesus commanded? Well, we know they didn't do it on their own strength. They had help, divine help. Someone came to help them to be a witness to the world. And if you're a Christian today, you have that same helper. And who are, whom are we talking about? But God the Holy Spirit. Topic of our lesson today is the coming of God the Holy Spirit. In our lesson today, we want to investigate three main questions. Before his ascension, what did Jesus promise his disciples about the Holy Spirit? Second, what happened when the Holy Spirit came? And third, what does the Holy Spirit do for believers today? As you know, in Christianity today in America, the Holy Spirit is usually misrepresented or underrepresented. Other people ascribe things to the Spirit which are not really from him, or out of caution or neglect, they don't even talk about the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is God one of the persons of the Trinity. He's not a force. He is a person. He has personality. I hope you all excuse the error I made in my email when I referred to the Holy Spirit as an it. I, I tried not to do that, but it did. It was a mistake. In English, we normally refer to spirits as things, but the Spirit is a person. And we want to know more about this person of the Godhead so that we can understand the Spirit better and also live uh, more wisely and more empowered lives. Let's pray before we continue and we look at this amazing happening of God. Oh, Lord, my God, I pray that you'd help me to be able to explain this word by your spirit. Spirit, please work among your people now. Work in me and work in your people. Make us more like Jesus. Show us more of Jesus. Help us to understand the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please open your Bibles to John chapter 16. This is where we're going to start our investigation today, looking at what Jesus told his disciples about the Spirit's coming. <clears throat> you should know, perhaps you already know, that the Spirit's coming, it was not really a surprise. The Old Testament foretold it. We'll mention that in a little bit later. And Jesus did too. And one of the places where that is quite explicit is John chapter 16. Remember, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples at the Last Supper. <clears throat> Besides giving them the Lord's table as a memorial of Jesus' work, he also has this extended conversation with the disciples in which he teaches them more. He comforts them, and he also tells them what is about to happen. And some of his words involve the Holy Spirit. Look at John 16, verses 5 to 15. 
So that's page 1080 if you're using the Pew Bible. Let's read what Jesus says. Verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All, th all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Right. We're just going to look at this section of the text starting and making observations. Jesus says that he's going to him who sent him. Who's that? The Father. Jesus is going to the Father. And this makes the disciples feel sorrowful. Along with the other things that Jesus has said about his own coming death and being separated from them. But notice how Jesus seeks to comfort his disciples. He tells them that it is actually to their advantage that he go away. That would seem unthinkable to the disciples, wouldn't it? I mean, Jesus, you have all authority. You have the words of life. You're the Messiah. We've come to know that. You are God. Why can't you stay with us? What, what would be great about you leaving us? Wouldn't we say the same if we were there with the disciples? But Jesus says, no, you'll actually gain something better by my leaving. And what will they gain? Jesus says they will gain the helper. He says, if I don't go, the helper cannot come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, who is the helper? It's somewhat implicit here that it's the Holy Spirit. But this is even clearer if we go back earlier in the conversation. Just flip a page or two back to John chapter 14. John 14 verses 16 to 17, Jesus says something else about this helper. Verse 16 of John 14, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. So this is pretty direct. Who's the helper? It's the Spirit of truth. Notice, though, Jesus says that he's another helper. So who's the first helper? It's Jesus himself. Yeah, it couldn't be anybody else. The Father sent Jesus as a helper, and now another helper will come, and that is the Holy Spirit. Notice what else Jesus says, though. The world cannot receive this helper since it does not see him or know him but the, he says the disciples know him. And why is that? Because, Jesus says, he abides with you and because he will be in you. 
Now that's poignant. He currently abides with you, but he will be in you. Notice also about 10 verses down in John 14 verses 25 to 26, Jesus says something else. Verse 25, these things I've spoken to you while abiding with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So notice here the Spirit is called the helper again. But note also what Jesus says the Spirit will do specifically when he comes. He will teach the disciples all things and he will bring to their remembrance all that Jesus said. So, quite clear in this conversation in John that the helper is the Holy Spirit. Interesting that he's called the helper, right? He's one who gives help or gives aid. Did you know that the Holy Spirit is the helper? Now, this does not connote anything about inferiority on, on the part of the helper. We already see that Jesus is a helper. Yahweh is called a helper in the Old Testament. And that's a good thing because who needs a lot of help? We do. Man does. We're in desperate need of help. But God's, God is our helper. And God sends a helper. This same word is also the one that appears in 1 John 2, 1. When it says, if any man sins, we have a helper. It's not translated helper. It's translated advocate or intercessor with the Father. Same word. And, and advocate's just another sense of, of being a helper. Now, back in John chapter 16. Notice what Jesus says the helper will do when he comes. It says in verse 8, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now these terms are explained in the words that follow, verses 9 to 11. What is the sin that Jesus has in mind about which, or of which the Spirit will convict the world? Not believing in the Son. All other sins really are, are that at their core, not believing in the Son. He says something about judgment <clears throat> on the ruler of this world. Who is the ruler of this world? This is Satan. In a sense, God is the ruler of this world. God's the creator and ruler of all things. But usually when the New Testament uses this phrase, ruler of this world, it is referring to Satan and his co-rulers, the demons. He's called, Satan is called, the prince of the power of the air, even the god of this world, small g. God has allowed him to rule this evil world system and this fallen world in a sense. But Jesus, or rather the Holy Spirit, testifies that the, world, the, the ruler of this world has been judged. Spirit testifies to judgment on Satan and really Satan's brood, all those that belong to him. Now notice that Jesus has more to say and to teach his disciples, but he says they're not ready. They cannot handle more truth. So what does Jesus say that will happen? The Spirit will be the one to guide the disciples into all the truth. Notice also, though, <clears throat> Jesus says the Spirit will say nothing on his own initiative. By the way, where have we heard that kind of phrase before? Someone who does nothing on his own initiative. Jesus himself. Jesus said that in regard to the Father. In John 8, 28, he says, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. 
So you can see something here about the roles of the persons in our triune God. They're all equal in substance and glory. That's very evident when we look at the various scriptures related to them. But they take on different roles. The Father gives to and charges the Son. The Son gives to and charges the Spirit. And the Spirit gives to and charges whom? He gives to us. And he lays charges on us. The Father and the Son minister to us via the Spirit and minister to his people. Now, so the Spirit will take what is Christ and give it to Christ's disciples. And note that this includes, Jesus says, telling the disciples what is to come and also glorifying the Son. The Spirit is chiefly concerned with the glory of the Son. Now, here in this passage, Jesus doesn't tell specifically the disciples when this Spirit will come, only that it will be after Jesus goes away. But he gave a more specific word in the beginning of the book of Acts. So switch over to Acts now. Acts chapter 1. I think this is our first time in the book. But this is where we're going to be for some time now in the coming lessons. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 8, we get some final words from Jesus. You remember, Acts is Luke's account written to Theophilus, a Gentile Christian dignitary. And he's recounting in the beginning of Acts the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus' commission to his disciples, and Jesus' ascension. Notice the words of Jesus' commission recorded by Luke, starting in verse 4. Acts 1-4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Which he said, you heard from me. You heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. I notice a few things from these verses. Notice Jesus' specific command to his disciples. Stay in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. And how long will the disciples have to wait? Jesus says it's not many days from now. Jesus describes the coming of the Holy Spirit like a baptism. He says it's similar to John's baptism. John baptized in water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And what would the disciples receive with the Spirit? Power. Power for what? Well, the context is the task Jesus has given them. Now, what is that task? To be Jesus' witness everywhere in the world. They will be empowered for that task. Now, imagine you heard these words yourself as one of those disciples there at Jesus' ascension. Talk about anticipation. Something new and amazing is about to happen, and it's about to happen to you by God. So we can summarize the promises Jesus gave his disciples about the Holy Spirit. He promised that the Spirit would come after his death, resurrection, and ascension. He promised that it would come upon them in an immersive way, an intimate way. He promised the Spirit would teach them all his truth, promised the Spirit would cause them to remember his truth, 
and promised the Spirit would empower him, empower them to declare his truth. Now, were Jesus' promises fulfilled? They were. And you don't have to wait very long in Acts to see their fulfillment. Let's now look at the actual coming of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 to 24. The section continues after that. We'll summarize some of the things later in the chapter, but we're just going to read verses 1 to 24. This is our main passage for today. The coming of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of, districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God said that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him and in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now, we have to stop there just for the sake of not trying to bite off too much. But I feel a little bit bad about that because the sermon continues and we're just right in the middle of it. Still, let's stop for observations and see what we notice. First of all, when is this happening? It says in verse 1, this is the day of Pentecost. 
Uh, what's Pentecost? Can anybody explain that? Yeah, Roy. Yeah, uh, thanks, Roy. Yeah, oh, we'll say more about that when we get to the interpretation step, but this is the Feast of Weeks. This is one of the three ordained feasts that God gave to Israel through Moses. This feast, oh, I, I should say, so being one of those three special feasts, all Jewish males were to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast and to worship God. And many of them were taking their families, but if they lived a long distance, and weren't able to take their families, it would be just the males who go. Now, why is it called Pentecost here and not the Feast of Weeks? Oh, I should mention, an alternate name for the Feast of Weeks is the Feast of First Fruits. This is a, a particular feast that, be, that would take place at the beginning of harvest, and you would take some of the first things you harvested and offer them as sacrifice to God and, and give thanks to them to God. Uh, Roy mentioned that it was also a time for celebrating the law given to Moses. That's a tradition that developed among the Jews. It wasn't actually something from, that wasn't a parameter from Moses, but that, that became a tradition also at this time. Now, this took place 50 days after Passover. That's something that Deuteronomy tells us. He says, once you have Passover, count a certain number of days, and then you're going to have this other feast. And that's where we get the name Pentecost. That's just Greek for 50th. Pentecostos. So we can see how the timing of the events we've even just looked at fit together. Jesus died at Passover. He spent a full day in the tomb, and then he was on the earth 40 days after he rose. So this event, Pentecost, would be about nine days after Jesus's ascension. Indeed, not many days, just as Jesus said. And as Roy mentioned, Pentecost explains why so many Jews from all over the world are in Jerusalem. They are there celebrating one of the God-ordained feasts, the Feast of Weeks, or First Fruits. Now, verse 1 mentions they. Verse 1, who is the they? Well, pronouns almost always refer to someone who was just mentioned, or, or a group that was mentioned earlier. And so if we go back into chapter 1, and there are two groups that we could look at. There's the 12 apostles, but then there's a larger group of disciples. Um, in chapter 1, verse 15, we hear of 120 disciples of Jesus, both men and women, gathering together in one place to replace Judas with God's new chosen apostle, Matthias. And they do that by proposing two different names and then uh, casting lots to see who the Lord chose. So which one of these groups? Well, verse 1 of chapter 2 says, they were all gathered together. That's reminiscent of that same language from chapter 1, verse 15. So this is likely not just the 12 apostles, but actually the whole group of believers, 120 there with the apostles. That's men and women, uh, young and old. The disciples are included there. 
So these events that take place in chapter 2, it involves this entire group. These would be the disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem. By the way, when the Spirit later falls on the Gentiles in the book of Acts, it does so in a similar way to how it is presented here. It doesn't fall on the leaders. It falls on everyone who's present. All those who believe in Jesus. So, I think we're talking about the they in chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1, is actually the 120 disciples. Now, for them to all be gathered in one place, which is where the passage says they are, they're sitting in a house. It must be a, a somewhat big house, as it's pretty difficult to get 120 people into a small room. But they're all together in one place. Though maybe not everybody's in the same room, they are in the same house. But then notice the dramatic coming of the Holy Spirit. There's this very arresting sight and sound. First, there's a sound. A sound like a rushing wind that filled the whole house. Now, it doesn't say it was a wind. It was a sound like the wind. Now, you know what the howling of the wind sounds like. When it's extremely windy outside, you just hear that incredible rush, that rush of air. Even when it's really loud, it can sound like a train. Such was the sound of the Spirit as it came into the house. And this great sound, verse 6 tells us, got the attention of the crowd. So it was quite loud. But there's also a sight. Tongues of fire, or what appeared to be tongues of fire, they weren't actually fire, but something like that appeared above each of the disciples, all 120 of them. Now, the text doesn't mention that the crowd saw these, these tongues of fire, these things like tongues of fire. It's possible it was a sight only for the believers in the house. But they occurred. They, uh, it, this sight, these tongues of fire were distributed to each person and re remained above their heads. And then what did the disciples begin to do? They began to speak in other tongues. Now the word translated tongues here means just that. It can refer to the organ inside your mouth that helps you speak, or it can refer to a language, the language that your mouth speaks. Now, we still have that idiom in English. It's kind of outdated now, so you don't hear it too often. But someone might say, he spoke in a foreign tongue, so I did not understand him. He's not saying that the tongue in his mouth was foreign. He's saying the language was foreign. I didn't understand his language. So the disciples, when they speak in tongues, what he's saying is that they spoke in other languages. Now, can you imagine 120 people, after the sound of rushing wind, they come pouring out of this house, and they're all speaking in various languages to the assembled crowd. People who are witnessing this know that something big, something strange, something awesome has just happened. And notice the languages that they speak are known languages because they're understood by those who witness them. Verse 8 says the people were marveling because they recognized the people who were speaking these languages were Galileans. Now, many of Jesus' followers were indeed from Galilee. That was where he made his base of operations. That's where he did much of his ministry. What's the stereotype about Galileans? Yeah, uneducated. It's kind of the way that, um, this is not appropriate, but northerners in the United States might characterize southerners. And they have that southern drawl. They say, y'all... We say, oh, you know, they're not as well educated. That's not actually true, but that's the way that people treated the people from Galilee at that time. 
they they had this regional accent, sounded unsophisticated to other people, so they figured Galileans were uneducated. So these people are marveling, the crowd is marveling that these people are, they seem to be Galileans, but they're able to speak all these different languages and of so many different regions in and around the Middle East. We won't talk about each one of those locations, but just know that's all around the Middle East and even into the Western part of the Mediterranean or Central Mediterranean. <clears throat> Not every one of these places, by the way, necessarily spoke a different language, though there were perhaps different dialects and everyone is hearing them in their own languages, the ones in which they were born. How is this possible? From Galileans? And what was it that the disciples were declaring in these languages? Verse 11 says they were speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And the crowd marvels, but not everyone in the crowd. There are some who say, these people are full of sweet wine. That is, they're drunk. And notice who gets up to speak to the crowd. It's Peter with the 11 other apostles standing next to him. What does Peter say? He first deals with the ridiculous assertion of drunkenness. He says, basically, guys, that doesn't make sense. It's only the third hour of the day. In other words, it's 9 a.m. It's way too early for people to be getting drunk. By the way, when he says these men, when Peter refers to these men, that doesn't actually exclude women from the number. The word in Greek is actually just a pronoun that means these, but it is masculine. And you, you can't have masculine and feminine in the same pronoun. So even though he uses the masculine, both masculine and feminine are covered in the concept. So he's not saying just a particular group of men was speaking, but actually all of them, all the people who were speaking. He says they can't be drunk. But then, besides saying that's ridiculous, he points out this is actually in, um, in keeping with what Joel said in his prophecy. He quotes a lengthy section of the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Now, you should know something about this prophecy from Joel. Know something about the context. In Joel, when he says these things right before, or in the context, is what God is going to one day do for Israel. And the verses that precede the ones quoted by Peter here in his sermon, Joel declares that God promises that Israel will one day repent and seek God. God also promises to deliver Israel from invading enemies. God promises abundant material prosperity for Israel. And then we get the verses that Peter quotes. Joel prophesies that God's spirit would be poured out on all mankind. All kinds of people will be receiving and declaring the word of God. And it's exactly what Jesus' disciples were demonstrating. Men and women, young and old, all declaring the truth of God. There is something else that Joel mentions, though, and that's included in what Peter quotes, something about the day of the Lord. Now, that term, especially in the latter prophets, is very uh, loaded with meaning. The day of the Lord is the culmination of history. It's a day of final judgment and final rescue. And you can see even the way the day of the Lord is described and what Peter quotes. This is a time where even the sun and the moon are going to be affected. There's blood and all kinds of signs on earth. It's a time of judgment. He says these things are coming to pass too. And as Joel says, Peter says, therefore, God says, all those who repent, all those who call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. 
he will be delivered from the judgment. So these are very poignant words from Peter. But it doesn't just address the, na the nature of the miracle. And it's not drunkenness. This is the spirit at work. But he also takes the opportunity to address the crowd's greatest need. He speaks to them about Jesus. And notice, this is not a very seeker-sensitive message. It tells the crowd, or rather, he reminds them that Jesus did many miracles that proved Jesus was from God. And then he bluntly tells them, they themselves, the Jews, they and their leaders nailed Jesus to a cross and killed him. But he clarified that this was, this was always part of God's plan. And God raised Jesus from the dead. It was impossible for him to stay in the grave. And then in the section we didn't read, Peter goes on to show that all of this was really foretold in the Old Testament. Not only the death and resurrection, but this one whom they crucified is Messiah and God. And look down to verse 36 of chapter 2. Kind of like a concluding point in his sermon, or the conclusion of the introduction of his sermon, rather. Verse 36, Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Wow, how does the crowd react to that? Well, look at the next two verses, 37 to 38. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we can see that people were convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment, weren't they? And many of them do exactly what Peter tells them to do. They repent. Verse 41 says that 3,000 that day received the word, were baptized, and added to their number. What number? Really, the number of the church. What we're seeing here is the church being established at Pentecost. Now, what is the church? It's not a building. The New Testament word for it is assembly. That's what it literally means. Assembly. Ecclesia just means assembly. These people were being added to the assembly of Jesus' disciples, of true believers. All right, so we've made our observations in the passage. Let's talk through some interpretation questions now. All right, first one's kind of basic here. Did Jesus' promises about the Holy Spirit come to pass? They did. Consider the pronounced difference in the disciples before and after Pentecost. Peter especially. Last time Peter had a chance to publicly witness faith in Christ, what did he do? He denied him three times. Called down curses on himself. He went out and wept bitterly. That's not a very great disciple of Jesus. But now, he who once denied Christ speaks boldly for Christ and on behalf of all the disciples. His message is bold. It's accurate. It shows a deep understanding of the Old Testament and Christ's ministry. This is so different. Remember how many times in Jesus' ministry he had to say to his disciples, Do you still not understand? Don't you get it yet? Or are your hearts hard? But here, Peter understands. And he's able to declare God's truth in a powerful way to the crowd. This is the power of God's Holy Spirit on a Christian. Now, let's get to a question that Roy was actually alluding to before. 
why is Pentecost a very appropriate day for the Holy Spirit to come? It's the beginning of the harvest. Indeed, this is the Feast of First Fruits. Now, there's a practical aspect of this. Roy mentioned this. What a great time for the Spirit to come because there are a ton of people in Jerusalem. There are a ton of people for the apostles to be witnesses to. And this miracle that involves speaking in languages, speaking in various tongues, and that would be a lot less dramatic if you didn't have a lot of people from all different places. Feast of Pentecost makes this miracle stand out in its awesomeness. But in a theological sense, Pentecost is extremely appropriate because in the Feast of First Fruits, we see the first fruits of a worldwide gospel harvest. It's very appropriate that the Spirit would come at this time. There are other ways that we can see first fruits here. The, the Spirit itself, the Spirit himself, is a kind of first fruits of what is to come for the believer. The disciples themselves are first fruits. Roy, are you going to say something? Hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, it's an interesting point, um, Roy. We mentioned that you you mentioned and we mentioned that the tradition of they were celebrating the giving of the law to Moses, and it does it in a in a sense parallel or correspond to the coming of the Spirit, which was really the, the fulfillment or acknowledging the fulfillment of the law. As you said, that people are not going to be living under the law. If they were true followers of God, they're not going to be living under the law anymore because it was fulfilled. You could also make a parallel between this, um, this supernatural gift to Moses in the law and now the supernatural gift of the Spirit. It actually enables one to obey the law. So there are a number of parallels. Pentecost, in God's wisdom, was the perfect day for the Spirit to come. And we can see the significance of that in, in various ways. Now, the technical question about the, how these uh, speaking in tongues work. Did the disciples speak in one language that was automatically translated into other languages? Or did they take turns speaking in various languages? Or did they, they separate and, and speak to various peoples in, in, in different languages all at the same time? How did this work? Well, the text is not very explicit about how it worked exactly, but I think the best understanding is this was not one language being understood by various speakers. This was actually many languages being spoken either in turn or to different groups. Each, each of the disciples spoke in one unique language at a time. And I say this is the best understanding because when we get to the book of Corinthians and Paul regulates the use of tongues in the church, the church at Corinth, he warns that tongues should not be used without an interpreter of the tongue, an interpreter of that language, which means that the words are not automatically understood by everyone or by every, every um, listener. It has to be someone who actually understands that language who can interpret it for the rest of the congregation. So there, we're having only people speak at one known language whenever they speak in this miraculous way at a time. And by the way, and this probably doesn't even need to be said, but what we see in Acts about this gift of languages does not 
does not correspond with what passes for speaking in tongues today. It's different. This is speaking in known languages, and languages that can be understood by men. But anyway, so it was one language at a time. Now, here's the bigger question. Was Peter saying that Joel's prophecy was fulfilled at Pentecost? Or if not, is Peter taking the scripture out of context? At first, we might want to say that Peter is declaring the prophecy of Joel has been fulfilled. But what's the problem with saying that? Context of that prophecy, a whole bunch of things that were supposed to have happened to Israel, which have not happened. Joel said the spirit outpouring would come after Israel repented and was delivered from its enemies. This has not happened. In fact, this message itself is a call for Israel to repent. And obviously the day of the Lord's judgment has not yet come. There's nothing that's happened to the sun and moon. So how could maybe Joel's prophecy is not being fulfilled? But the prophecy says something about the Spirit, and the Spirit is clearly going forth at Pentecost. So what do we do with this? Do we need to reinterpret the meaning of Joel's prophecy in a way that's different than the context of Joel would lead us to understand? Now, some interpreters would go this way. They would say you've got to let the New Testament reinterpret or show you what the meaning of the Old Testament is, even if it contradicts or nullifies the original sense. But there's a better way. There's a better answer to this question that doesn't violate normal hermeneutics and open the door to eisegesis. What is the better way to explain the apparent fulfillment of Joel's prophecy here on the day of Pentecost? Hmm. Okay, I think you said something very valuable, Paul. A lot of times you'll hear teachers, interpreters talk about a prophecy's immediate fulfillment and future fulfillment, or near fulfillment or far fulfillment. That can be a little bit misleading because some prophecies that are the things that the near factor of the prophecy is not really fulfillment of that prophecy. But there is a sense that there's a, there's a near value to a prophecy and then there's a far value. What I would say is that what we see here is a preview of the ultimate fulfillment. After all, this is the Feast of First Fruits, is it not? Peter's not saying that everything that Joel declared was now fulfilled, but he is saying that what Joel wrote is beginning to be fulfilled or is being fulfilled in a preview sense because the disciples themselves are the first fruits of what will one day be true of the whole nation. He says, you remember this prophecy that Joel said about how all the nation and even all peoples on earth are going to be filled with the Spirit? Look, it's beginning to happen. If you want to experience this Israel, then what must you do? You must repent. And the judgment that's going to come, it's still going to come. And if you want to be spared from that judgment, you've got to repent. Such a view, I think, I see your hand, Roy, we'll get, um, I'll get to you in just a second. Such a view, this idea of being a, a preview or the beginning of an ultimate fulfillment, this is the same sense we see actually in a number of prophecies in the Old Testament. And I think it's the, it's the best way to understand them. For consider one that we all know, Jeremiah 31, the prophecy of a new covenant. 
Is that fulfilled in the church? We would want to say yes, obviously. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He said at the Last Supper, this is the new covenant in my blood. We're part of the new covenant, aren't we? That prophecy is fulfilled. Well, remember Jeremiah 31 says explicitly that the new covenant will be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You remember we looked at this together in Sunday school. Jeremiah prophesied that one day the law of God will be written on all the hearts of the Jews so that no one would need to teach his neighbor anymore about God. They will all know God. Has that happened? No, clearly not. But it has begun to happen. There are first fruits of that new covenant promise being fulfilled. A remnant has been saved and had the law written on their hearts from Israel. But the full harvest has not yet come. And it won't come until all the elect Gentiles have also been gathered in. This is why Paul explains what he does in Romans 11 and around that section. And that's why Paul says, all Israel will be saved. So, what Paul's saying, or not Paul, Peter is saying here about the prophecy from Joel being evidenced or being fulfilled, it's not that everything that Joel said was fulfilled, but it is a the first fruits of the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy. Okay, Roy, what were you gonna say? Hmm. 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 Yeah, you said a number of valuable things, Roy. Though you also bring to my mind how um, the phrase that we often see in the Old Testament will say, in the last days, or there'll be a phrase that talks about uh, things that are going to be towards the end. That is a broad term. And when the prophets use that, they can refer to things that are happening right at the very end of history and things that are leading up to that. So there's a lot of discussion in the New Testament about how mm -hmm. believers live in the last days. And yet, the last days that we live in are not quite as late as the last days of some of the other things that are going to take place, like these, these incredible judgments. But this is the beginning of the last days and the beginning of many of the fulfillments, just as you were saying, Roy, of prophecies of blessing from God and also prophecies of judgment. All right, let me get to some other big questions. So um, we have time for each one of them. Though we cannot answer either of these next two questions in a full way, I just want to broach them. 
How different is the Spirit's ministry in the New Testament compared to the Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament? That's a big and difficult question. I'm only going to say a few things in answer to it, but it's one that even eminent teachers and theologians are going to have slightly different perspectives on. Difficult question to answer. But let's just say some things at a basic level. There is both continuity and discontinuity in the Spirit's ministry between the Testaments. In the Old Testament, for example, we see the Holy Spirit affecting individuals in three main ways. That is, they receive and understand God's revelation and wisdom. They speak God's revelation to others, and they are empowered and emboldened to do God's will. That's usually what we see. Then we see the same things in the New Testament. The receiving of God's wisdom and revelation, speaking it to others, and being empowered and emboldened to do God's will. That's really what we're even seeing from the apostles and Peter at Pentecost. Moreover, though not stated explicitly in the Old Testament, New Testament teaching about salvation shows us that the Spirit was functioning in a similar way or even the same way when it came to producing salvation in a person in the Old Testament. The Spirit regenerated someone. The Spirit was working to sanctify the person in the Old Testament. And this corresponds with what Jesus says, the Spirit is with you. But there are also clear differences between the ministries of this, the ministry of the Spirit between the two Testaments. Jesus says he is with you, but he will be in you. There is a difference. Moreover, those in the Old Testament who were said to be empowered, or those who were clearly empowered by the Old Testament, they were few in number. It never was poured out in a great way. And even when the Spirit came upon a person or a group of people, it was very often temporary. It was not a permanent thing. It did not permanently indwell. And even though the Spirit would work in and through people, the Spirit would always said to come upon a person, never to actually uh, remain in them or indwell them. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is actually not totally new. But there are striking differences and great enough differences that Jesus said to his disciples, having the Spirit after my ascension is better than having me stay bodily on the earth. So there is consistency, but there's also uh, great difference and even great uh, the difference is wonderful for those who exist after the Spirit's coming but what does it mean for us today? This is the final interpretation question I want to consider how different is the Spirit's ministry at Pentecost from the ministry of the Spirit now? Again big question, only answer in a very basic way, few things to say, oh but I do have some verses for you to look up as, as a homework for you verses that talk about the Spirit's ministry today, and you can study these on your own. We know that God's, uh, I'll show you the verses in just a second. We know that God's powerful Spirit was not only confined to the apostles. We have all 120 disciples being used powerfully by the Spirit at this time. And even in the sermon, Peter promises the crowd that if they repent, the people will receive the Holy Spirit as well. This was not some gift for the super spiritual or for the leaders, it's for all Christians. But not every Christian is given the same manifestation of power as the apostles were. We will see as we go through the book of Acts, the apostles were empowered to do miracles, speak prophecy, and even write God's inspired, inerrant, perfect scripture. These are not abilities given to every Christian. And the New Testament and church history both indicate that the miraculous sign gifts that the Spirit gave to the church in its infancy 
they passed away after accomplishing their purposes. Nevertheless, you, if you're a Christian, we as Christians have received the same powerful spirit to permanently indwell us. And that spirit functions in a similar way as it did even at Pentecost. As in the Old Testament, today, the Holy Spirit empowers us to understand God's wisdom and revelation in the scriptures, to speak God's revelation to others, and it empowers us to bold and righteous action. We can even be more specific based on what the New Testament says. Here are a bunch of verses. These come from the workbook, and you can study these on your own. I would encourage you to do so. They're in the workbook if you, um, if you have the workbook, but if you don't, you can copy them down. Here are some of the things that the New Testament specifically says that the Spirit is still doing today. The Spirit still gives people new birth in Christ, and it changes a dead sinner into a child of God. At conversion, the Spirit baptizes a person once and for all into Christ and, to, and into all of Christ's blessings. There's no need for a second baptism of the Spirit. That's an unbiblical teaching. You are baptized into the Spirit at conversion. Since Pentecost, that is the experience of all believers. The Spirit continues to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit serves as a seal and a guarantee of the Christian's eternal inheritance. The Spirit produces fruits of righteousness in the Christian's heart and life. Fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit causes one to obey Christ. The Spirit causes a Christian to experience fellowship with God. The Spirit brings a bond of fellowship to believers, a bond that is greater than any produced by worldly means. Unity through the Spirit. And the Spirit empowers men and women, young and old, for the use of spiritual gifts for the edification of the church. And these are for everyone. These things I've just mentioned, they are for all believers. It doesn't matter who they are, what their life station is, how old they are. But these blessings come with sober responsibilities. Indeed, the Spirit comes upon every believer. But the believer is then charged not to grieve the Holy Spirit, not to grieve the Holy Spirit with sin. Believers are exhorted to walk in the Spirit via obedience to God. And believers are warned not to desecrate the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is our bodies. And how does one desecrate the temple of the Holy Spirit? Not with fast food, not with even tattoos or cigarettes, but with sin. That's how you defile the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what 1 Corinthians 6 warns against. Not just individually, but the church as well. Both are referred to as the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are actually stones in God's living temple. So again, your homework, if you choose to accept it, is to go through these passages. Note what they say about the work of the Spirit in the believer's life and in the world. Because this is true of you, if you're a believer. Now, as we wind down here, if you're a Christian, consider how blessed you are to have received God's Holy Spirit. Since the garden, man has been desperate to find a way to be reconciled to God, to dwell in God's presence again. Israel sought this blessing, seemed to receive this blessing, but could not have God remain in their midst because of sin. But because of Christ and his work, God has removed all barriers between his people and himself. Their sin has been paid for. Therefore, God's spirit doesn't just dwell near his people, but actually in his people. If Jesus were on earth, it'd be wonderful. 
But because he has a human body, he could not be everywhere at once. He couldn't be with all of us. But now that we have the Spirit, just as Jesus said, Christ is always with us. Each one of us, no matter where we are, whether in California, whether in New Jersey, whether anywhere on earth, whether even in space, wherever you go, if you're in Christ, the Spirit is with you. It is indeed Emmanuel, God with us. He will never leave us, not to the end of the age, not even to the end of the age. And what a privilege. What a gracious God. How wonderful it will be, as Joel prophesied and as others prophesied, when Christ's kingdom comes and all Israel is baptized into God's spirit. And they and all the nations, the remnant of the nations that are still around, they and all the nations of the world, that will one day come. God's spirit we poured out on every nation and on all the Jews. We are the first fruits of that. And we want to see more of that. We want to see more of a harvest for God, but it will come in an even greater way. We praise the Lord. But our responsibility is clear. We are to cooperate with the Spirit. We are to walk in the Spirit. We are to obey the Spirit. We are to let God's Spirit work powerfully in us and through us. So a few questions to think about as we end considering application. Number one, do you have the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit is a wonderful blessing, but he only belongs to true believers. Do you have the Holy Spirit? If you will turn from idols, from self and self-righteousness, you too will receive the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins through Christ. If you do have the Holy Spirit, do you walk in the Spirit and in his power? Or because of sin, idolatry, lack of faith, do you quench and grieve the Spirit? We have not received the spirit of sin, weakness, or timidity, but of power. Look how powerful it worked in these first believers. And we say, well, you know, Peter, he's he's an apostle, but he wasn't just the only one being empowered by the Spirit. And he's just a man. It wasn't him. It was the Spirit. And you have the same Spirit. Power of the Holy Spirit is not just for your pastor or for those super Christians. It's for you. You have that same Spirit of holiness and power. So are you taking advantage of him? You are responsible to cooperate with the Spirit. So brothers and sisters at Calvary, are you doing that? Then finally, do you thank and praise God for the Holy Spirit? Many faithful believers throughout the millennia have not received what you have received. God gave them their own perfect provision in that time, but you have something even better. Does your heart overflow with gratefulness to God for his spirit, for the gift of his spirit? Or do you take the spirit for granted? Do you take all of God's salvation for granted? Beware of such an attitude. If you find yourself thinking that, ask yourself whether you've really come to have salvation. Because the grandeur of the salvation realities should affect us in a big way, in fundamental ways. They're not things we can take for granted. Now, this Lessons Day may have generated a lot of questions. We can't talk everything that there is to say about the Spirit in one lesson, but wanted to at least broach the things on a basic level. If you have other questions, please email me. Of course, you can always ask Pastor or one of the other elders as well. So the church is officially established at Pentecost. And we're going to see a lot more about the church as we move through Acts. Everything is just amazing. Look at this great power and manifestation of the Spirit. And God is glorifying himself. And he will continue to do that as we move through Acts, but sometimes in an unexpected way. 
Next time, we're going to talk about the persecution of the apostles. It's actually how God is going to glorify himself in another way in the church. That's it for this week. Let's pray as we close. Our God, our great God, Yahweh, thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for dwelling in us. God, we know that we have, along with this great gift and blessing, we have a responsibility. We cannot live in sin. We cannot live nonchalantly. We cannot live in an idolatrous way and claim to have the Spirit. Lord, your Spirit is grieved by such things. We will not enjoy fellowship with you. We may not even have you if we live in such a way. God, I pray that the people of Calvary would be walking in the Spirit, being obedient, being sensitive to the Spirit, to obey all that your Word declares, to cooperate with the Spirit as they subject themselves to your Word, confident, God, that you will help them to understand it. We thank you for those those, um, great blessings, those undeserved graces, God. pray that you bless Calvary and the rest of their time of worship and teaching today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're welcome. See you next week.